Hey everyone, welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Gain, I'm your host. I'll be joined by Regan DeLoggins uh, later on in the show. We are on listener-supported radio, and we do count on your contributions to support WBAI and WPFW. Uh, so right off the top, let me, uh, let me, let me give out some uh, pledge line numbers. If you are listening in New York on WBAI, uh, please do call 212-209-2950. Make a contribution of any size. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. I'm not a big fundraiser on the station. Um, I used to do better, but uh, so I'm, I'm asking you if you're listening to this program to uh, you know dig in a little bit and see if you can't uh, can't help us get something uh, you know something a little going a little bit here with uh, with fundraising for Resistance Radio with John and Regan. Um, if you're listening in uh, in Washington on WPFW, that pledge line is two zero two five eight eight nine seven three nine. That's two zero two five eight eight nine seven three nine. Um, and you can uh, give that number a call and uh, make a contribution of any size to this, uh, to this great station as well. All right, so a year ago this week, I traveled to Cambridge, New York, from my home here in the Seneca Territory of Cattaraugus, and I form formally requested that the Cambridge Central School, school that I graduated high school from, in fact, I went, there, went to school there from the third grade up until I graduated, that they retire, dismiss, eliminate, whatever, however you want to frame it, um, the, uh, their, their native mascot. They had been called the Cambridge Indians. And ever since that day, <laughs> the school board meetings have been very well populated. <laughs> and, uh, and they've been raucous. And, you know, uh, going through this entire year, there have been, you know, ebbs and flows as far as how many of these board meetings were virtual versus how many were, were live in, uh, in front of a crowd. Um, we've seen how this whole thing has, uh, has played out. The school board ultimately uh, had retired the mascot, and then when a few newly seated uh, board members took their seats, they rescinded that resolution and tried to bring it back. Um, some parents who thought this was wrong uh, had petitioned the New York State Department of Education and suggested that uh, the commis Commissioner Rosa needed to put, a, put the brakes on that, uh, on that resolution to rescind and reinstate, and, uh, which she did. And we're kind of waiting now for a final ruling, but the fact that she issued the stay leaves Cambridge, New York, Cambridge Central School in Cambridge, New York, a school without a mascot, and which is not a terrible thing, but it, that, that's, that's the current status. But every week, every, or I should say every month that there is a, uh, a school board meeting, it just gets filled, you know, almost to capacity. And among the things that was, uh, was a big deal this week, and, and usually their, their board meetings are on, on a Thursday, um, but this week because of um, a holiday celebrating military, uh, romanticizing military, they held it on Tuesday. Um, so they had a board meeting, and one of the topics was uh, the former board president who was replaced on the same day that they tried to bring the mascot back, uh, wrote 
a couple of emails to the commissioner of the New York State Department of Education suggesting, one, that, that she review what the Cambridge Board of Education uh, had done and suggested that, that she take action. He followed that email up with another one uh, pointing out some discrepancies in some of the, uh, the filings that, that came from the, the then sitting uh, or current sitting uh, board president. Uh, and so this was being looked at by this community and by uh, you know, the, the powers that be on the, the current makeup of the board that this was like treasonous. And so there was a lot of uh, debate on whether some formal action uh, should be taken against this, uh, you know, this, this current board member, again, former board president. And they, did, they basically decided that he was no longer going to be allowed in, in, into any executive sessions of the board or participate in any of the legal briefings associated with this current um, legal dispute over the, the mascot. Um, they did not remove him, uh, although that was certainly a topic of discussion. There's, there's usually two periods of, of time during these board meetings where the public gets to speak, and it was pretty raucous. But you know, it's, it, what's interesting and what really needs to be understood is that there is um, a rise in the vitriol, the racist vitriol, ever since I brought this issue up um, uh, a year ago. And you know, look, I've been, I've been kind of beating the drum on this a little bit for more than a year, but I made my formal request in November of, of 2020. And so this is what we've been, this is what we've been experiencing, so to speak. Um, and this, what, what's, what came out of some of this debate over the mascot has been um, jumping on to the right wing, um, you know, craziness, I guess you would say, if you want, whatever you want to call it, uh, um, hysteria over critical race theory. So, this is where this, this took an interesting turn because in, in the midst of, you know, all of the, you know, some of these folks in the, in the town of Cambridge saying that they don't care what the board does, they're still going to do war hoops and they're going to do tomahawk chops and they're going to, they're going to continue to call themselves quote unquote Indians. Um, and, and of course, let me, let me preface this by, for those of you who haven't been following this, this town is like 98% white. I mean, it is very, very white. Um, there were no people of color in the school when I graduated from there back in 1978. Uh, we had one exchange student, one student that came from Pakistan, so he was the only other person of color other than uh, me and my family. So it is a really, really white town. Now there's a few speckles of color here and there, um, but it is, the culture is white. So even to the extent that there are people who, um, who may not necessarily be white, they fall into line. And, and, I, and I say they, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the majority. There are clearly some people in Cambridge who know that Cambridge is, uh, has got some problems. And, uh, but but it's, a, it's a very, very white town, let's, let's just put it that way. So out of this conversation over the mascot issue has been this clamor and, and again, hysteria over, uh, over critical race theory. So I wanted to bring up something that happened at the Tuesday meeting. And this is, um, what I'm going to read right now is from the, the Post Star, which is the newspaper in Glens Falls, New York, which covers that general area uh, around Cambridge, which is, you know, not far from the Albany region. 
And this is what the Postar uh, wrote. They said, one man held up a copy of The Black Friend on Being a Better White Person by Frederick Joseph that he said his daughter had borrowed from the school library. If this isn't critical race theory, I don't know what is. It's disgusting, it's crap, and he said he would not return it to the school. So all of a sudden, one of New York Times best-selling <laughs> authors, uh, Frederick Joseph, has been brought into the debate in little upstate, you know, uh, rural town, rural white town uh, of Cambridge, New York. And his book, which is a, a book that is, it's a young adult book. It's, it's, it's targeted towards, you know, towards teens. And it's, it's really meant to be um, help. I mean, to, to help, especially white folks, young white folks, how to navigate these troubling times. Um, and or, I don't even call them troubling times, but these, the, these changing times, put it that way, um, as it relates to race, racism, uh, social justice, and basically trying to teach young people, look, you have a responsibility because there is white privilege. And how do you use that white privilege to, um, you know, to make the, the most positive change? So that's, that's essentially what the, what the book is. Again, New York Times bestseller, a young adult um, uh, genre, um, and that's called The Black Friend, uh, Being a Better White Person, on, on Being a Better White Person. Now, I became aware of uh, Frederick Joseph several years ago. There was an article, an, an opinion piece that he wrote in uh, USA Today, and, and that was in August of, um, of uh, 2018. And the name of the piece says, I wore a Caucasian shirt to expose the hypocrisy of racist logos. And he, he indeed did. He, he wore a, one of, and you guys have seen it. I've worn Worn it on the, the show a bunch of times. Uh, for those of you who are watching on Facebook, you've seen my Caucasian shirt. I didn't wear it today. I probably should have. Um, but but um, Frederick wore this, this shirt and was somewhat amazed at the, um, at, at the mixed reaction of God. And he was wearing it to an event that he was, he was going to be a part of a radio panel. So there was, there was a, a certain amount of a live audience, but there was also people that he passed. It was August, walking around with a T-shirt on in, in New York. And... I know that I've done the same thing. I've got a, I've got a collection of, uh, of T-shirts that poke fun, specifically at the, at the Washington football team, um, a parody. And that's what this Caucasian shirt is. I've got one that also mocks the, the, the Cleveland baseball team. Um, but uh, so I've got, I've got a number of these shirts, and, and some of you who follow the show are, are, are aware of it. But, um, but, you know, it's even a little different. Because when I wear it, look, in, in a place like New York City, I... I'm, I'm clearly going to pass for some people as a white person wearing a Caucasian shirt. That that sends a little bit different signal. Even though I'm native, and and we we get judged about how native we look, it clearly is going to be different than when when a black man wears a Caucasian shirt because now you know he's being sarcastic, <laughs> and and we've seen it with a couple of other uh, you know athletes and sports commentators who who've done the same thing on national television. Um, but that's when I became aware of uh, Frederick Joseph and, and some of his work. And his work has always been involved in, in, in tackling some of this uh, some racism. And, and, and this was one of the instances where he wasn't just talking about black people. You know, look, and, and there's no sense in talking about people of color when it comes to racism. Because racism is a white thing. 
I mean, it's not a right thing. It's not a left thing. It's a white thing. Now, and that, having said that, I'm not saying all white people are racist. But pretty much all racists are white people. All right, maybe I need to define racism again once more. Um, racism is the belief that um, based on the perception of race, a people are superior to other, other people. So if you are a racist, you believe that you, as a white person, um, have, uh, are, are superior to, to others who are not white. And that doesn't necessarily translate into hate crimes and bullying or, you know, or persecution necessarily, but, but it's, it's just a belief. It's a belief that you can judge a per the quality of a person their intellect, whatever, however you want to define it. I mean, obviously, beauty, any number of ways of measuring people, I guess, um, by race. And, and that, that white people um, are superior. And that's what racism is. Now, where racism becomes systemic, and, and, and it is systemic, is that one dominant um, culture that is supported by this, these racist beliefs really has control and have power because racism isn't just about the belief in, uh, in the superior, superiority, inferior, inferiority uh, metric. It, it's about having the power to secure benefits to um, a specific race. And, and of course, in the United States, and in fact, most countries that have a strong European um, background, um, it, it's, it's white people. I mean, it, it, now I'm not saying that racism can't exist um, in other cultures where white people are not the dominant culture and somebody else can you know, promote and exercise racism in a way that they can control um, you know, policy, institutions. You know, again, in the United States, we can clearly look at the prison system and the justice system and, and see the, the impacts. And this is where the whole idea of critical race theory comes in. But to teach history and to talk about racism is not critical race theory. Currently, in spite of what, what people believe in Virginia or any place else, there are no schools that are teaching critical race theory. None. No high school, no grade school, none of them are teaching critical race theory. A few, a very few colleges that, are, that have a, a, law, a law school teach critical race theory because what critical race theory is, is, is understanding how racism has impacted law. Not just justice, but, but law. And that is essentially what critical race theory is. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, so all of these people who are screaming about, about critical race theory, what they're really screaming about is the idea that there might be something taught that could make white, white people uncomfortable. Not even necessarily the white students. I mean, look, this, this man picks up the book and says his daughter brought this home from school. You know, and I sarcastically said, oh, boy, you really saved her from the harm being done by that book. No, it had nothing to do with her. It has to do with him. And this is where white superiority or white supremacy, white privilege, and white fragility uh, that line becomes real blurry. And look, I, I know some people hate the idea of, of white fragility, you know, the, the idea of talking about it because you know, white people still control so much. It doesn't mean 
whether they, I'm not saying they, they are fragile. I mean, from a, from a control standpoint, I'm saying their fears make them fragile and it makes them dangerous. So when this white man stands up and, and holds up um, uh, Frederick Joseph's book and, you know, basically says that he's, he's stealing it, I'm not going to return it back to the library. Uh, and then others jump on and say, we should, uh, you know, ban books and we should, uh, you know, keep our kids home from school. So schools will, you know, be um, docked their, their state funding and that kind of stuff. It is, this is where we're at. And look, and we know that we've seen um, people, the, the right has really been promoting um, board uh, candidates to run for office or for, for school boards and using this critical race theory. Look, critical race theory got, got the governor of Virginia elected for crying out loud. I mean, let's be honest. It is, it is absolute hysteria. It's not real. I mean, a, a, again, this, this idea that, that the right is using this as a, as a weapon, as a bludgeon, I guess, to, um, you know, to, to really beat up on anybody who's suggesting there does need to be a closer, a closer look. And look, th these conversations about race and racism have been going on for many, many years. I mean, uh, you know, one of the people in, in part of some of the, the social media threads was saying, this guy's going after uh, Frederick Joseph. What about Frederick Douglass? Are you gonna, not going to teach about him? Not a big fan of Frederick Douglass, in spite of his uh, his abolitionist uh, you know background. Um, I've got some other issues with him, but we won't need to get into that today. But but the whole idea is that you're going to avoid teaching any subject that can make white people what feel uncomfortable. And let's be honest, it's not just about comfortable; it's about making white people feel guilty, because that's the concern. The concern is that schools may play a role in producing white guilt. Now, again, hear me out on this thing. They're not concerned that history should, should do that. They're saying teaching the history will. Because there's no question that the atrocities white people have committed against people of color is, is pretty incredible. I mean, it's, and, and then when you think about the past, I mean, look, how many people were arrested again after the Tulsa riot? Zero. None. I mean, how many people have actually been convicted of lynching? Almost none. And you only have to watch this trial of this little white boy who, who shot up some people uh, um, in, in Wisconsin to see and to note how clearly different he is being treated because he's a white boy as opposed to you know, a, a black person who, who crossed a state, a state line with an illegally um, possessed gun and killed two people, shot a third. I mean, would there be any, would there be any question? Uh, of, of course not. But, but this is kind of where we're at. And frankly, it's why the subject of critical race theory is important and why it's necessary. And, 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 but the fact that, it, that it's in spite of its necessity, it is, it, it's not being taught. And you know what? As far as I'm concerned, it should be taught in high school. There should be meaningful dialogue as soon as kids are starting to, to develop these biases. Because let's face it, they're getting this stuff at home. I mean, what happened after this, because it was in, in, a, in a newspaper, um, uh, Frederick Joseph was made aware of it. And, he, and, and, and Frederick has a, has a lot of following on social media, on Twitter, Instagram. So he posted it. He posted the quote from the paper and then went on to say, look, the whole book is, was, I wrote the book 
so that white kids who don't want to be bigots will know how to avoid that bigotry. And yet this is, you know, this is uh, what the response of a, of a parent is. So now, you know, Frederick Joseph has, has, has made the noise on Twitter. And in fact, we've had a couple of exchanges. And, um, and in fact, he's even offered to do a, um, a Zoom conference um, for some of the folks in, in Cambridge to, to address the issue. Now, I don't expect, frankly, I, I actually hope that, you know, some of these racists who, and I guess this is where I want to make a point here. When I say some of these racists, I went to school from the third grade till I graduated uh, high school in, in Cambridge, New York. And I never looked at Cambridge as being a racist community or a community filled with racists. But there was no question that there was no diversity. I mean, I was the, the only person of color in that school for, or for a period of time, myself and my siblings. So there, there was no diversity there. And it sometimes it's really, really difficult to see racism when you don't ever see a non-white person being, uh, you know, having to interact with, with white people. My own experiences, yes, I got called Chief, and I got called Squanto, and, and Wahoo, and wa or Wapu, and, and sometimes, you know, somebody wanted to be a, you know, a wise guy, they'd call me Pocahontas, or, or some damn thing. And now, I had nothing, that had nothing to do with the mascot, necessarily, but it had to do with the fact that I was Native, and they didn't know anything about interacting with a Native person. They'd never seen a Native person before. And many of them never have since. And to the extent that they may have run into a few people who are in the area that, that have Native ancestry who support the mascot issue, they think that is the entire issue. So this idea that, that, a, that a debate that is a well-formed, well-informed debate, I might add, one that is, that is obviously a strong enough conversation to convince the, the Washington football team to finally drop its name, the Cleveland baseball team to drop its name. All of the NCAA has, uh, you know, has pushed out all of the, the native names with the exception of one. And, and against pretty strong opposition, to be clear. And, and we're seeing some of that opposition in little towns like Cambridge, New York. And because it's a debate over a race-based mascot, it becomes a debate over racism in general. Now, I've never called, like I, said, like I said, I never called Cambridge a racist community. But this debate over the mascot issue has really forced, or I don't want to say forced, but it's caused this racism to really percolate to the top. And of course, you know, add, you know, add a Trump presidency in there, um, you know, and the, the debate over social justice in, with, in the wake of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and so many others. Um, I mean, Freddie Gray, uh, Eric Gardner. I mean, we, when you throw in all of the names, the long list, and then you, then you add a, a Colin Kaepernick taking a knee to, to the mix, now you realize that, that the racial tensions that exist or the tensions over racism um, are pretty remarkable. And in towns where there is nothing to, to force the debate, like, like the mascot issue, for instance, 
Everything just keeps going status quo. Nothing changes until somebody who gets influenced by <clears throat> perhaps something they watch on Fox News or something else decides they got to pick up the, the mantle on pushing back against critical race theory. And that's what we're, that's what we're seeing here. Now, um, I, I would love to get uh, Frederick Joseph to join me on the program or on my, or on my podcast, and uh, you know, and I'm hoping to get that that you know ask out there. Um, but I do encourage you to check out his work. I mean, he's he's the author of, uh, of like I said, the Black Friend on being a better white person, uh, uh, patriarchy blues, uh, better than we uh, uh, than we fo uh, found it. Um, he has written opinion pieces. Like I said, the the opinion piece that I. I first became aware of uh, Frederick over was um, the one that was in the in USA Today in August of um, uh, 2018. I wore a Caucasian shirt to expose the hypocrisy of racist logos. Uh, he, you know, he talks about you know Colin Kaepernick even then. So I mean, look, this um, this is a uh, a really terrific writer. And who is really trying to provide a public service? I mean, he's had his own experiences. He had an experience with somebody in in New York who, you know, was was you know, basically uh, a woman trying to assault him for all intents and purposes um, because he was filming her because she was, you know, she, she was coming after him over believing that he, I don't know, was doing something to offend her. Kind of like one of those typical dog stories on in a park, you know, the the where the Karen lo, uh, label gets uh, get gets developed. So he's had, had some of this, um, these issues. And, and, and I know if you're a person of color, we've all had them. We've all had them. I mean, I know, again, even if I could be white passing, I, I make it clear that I'm native. And so what, what I've experienced because of this thing, and look, and I've experienced racism in many places. And I don't need to come touch too close to home on where I've experienced, where I've, I, I have experienced some of it. But we, you know, I'm a, I'm a grandfather of nine, uh, you know, a father of three, a grandfather of nine. So I've watched my kids experience it. And, you know, especially when we get into some of these crazy holiday seasons, even, even today. You know, this idea that, that Native kids are being, you know, pressured to, you know, to glorify the role that they're, relatives played in, in military service. Look, not all of us think that that's a good thing. <laughs> I think the whole idea of romanticizing war is, is a problem that the United States has. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the racism problem. You know, but I know, I know, look, today's a holiday that everybody wants to you know, pull out the pictures of their family members in uniform. I get it. But just be careful what you, what you wish for because you might see family members in them again. And that's something none of us should ever hope for. And I'm not going to start singing uh, Buffy St. Marie's Universal Soldier by any means, but let's, let's be clear. We should, we should not only be addressing the climate change issue, but we should also be addressing the, the global conflict issue, which is oftentimes tied directly to climate change as well. But I, th I think it, it's, it's pretty incredible. Look, I've been at this for a year with, with my old high school. Um, I'm expecting, in fact, I'm, I was really kind of hoping it would happen this month. You know, I, I, I sarcastically referred to this as our special month. Look, if Dr. Betty Rosa were, were, were going to make a ruling 
this would be a good month for her to make a ruling. So anybody who knows Dr. <laughs> Dr. Rosa, by all means, you know, tell her to get it done in November. And, and maybe we can push back on some of this crap that is taught on this, on this month relating to Native history that is so inaccurate. But we're waiting for her ruling, and I actually submitted, submitted an amicus brief in, the, in, the, uh, in that. And, and trust me, I am not real popular in Cambridge, New York right now. Look, I've got some really good friends out there, and I have to applaud the, the folks who have stepped up in support of changing the mascot. And the people who do go to these boards, me, board meetings, when sometimes they're outnumbered you know, 10 to 1, um, who speak out. And, I, and I've got to give, you know, you know, give some praise to, uh, to the former uh, president of the, the CCS, the Cambridge Central School uh, Board of Education, uh, Neil Gifford, for, for taking a stand. I mean, he, he pushed um, a real thorough review of all of the information that came from you know, the American Psychological Association, the New York State Association of School Psychologists, uh, uh, every Native organization, not just nation, but, uh, you know, but uh, trade organization, um, mental health organization, child development uh, experts, they, re they reviewed it all. And, uh, and he made an intelligent uh, proposal, which caused, uh, called for the retirement of, of this, this mascot. Um, and it passed by a three to two margin. And then after some newly elected board members who ran solely on the mascot issue, by the way, were seated, they rescinded that resolution and then tried to reinstate the mascot. And that's where uh, right now the decision is being um, made by the commissioner of New York, uh, New York State Education Department. And look, I've never been a real big fan of mandates, any kind of mandate. I, 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 the whole idea that the government has to tell you what to do. Is, look, I find that as problematic as anybody, right or left. I mean, we should be concerned about it. But the, but the fact of the matter is, there are pockets of conservatism, I would say, or, or right-wing you know, fanaticism that really can't do the right thing. I mean, because even when people want to do it, they become the targets of, of hate and vitriol, or in the case of these boards, look, if you've got a school board of qualified uh, people who are really interested in education, who believe that research and real information, not just opinions, and not just your opinion, should be what drives decisions, especially decisions you know, that relate to social justice or uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is a which is a, a a real big push on in high schools right now. That is essentially coming to loggerheads with this hysteria over critical race theory. But but if you're if you're that kind of a board member, you have to answer to a community sometimes that is never going to review the information. They're never going to um, take the time. In Cambridge, there were thousands of pages of information that, that was provided to the board. I mean, look, they, they, they studied this damn thing for, uh, for almost a year, eight, eight or nine months. They pushed off the deadline for, uh, for what was supposed to be a vote, um, tried to do some, you know, some uh, healing circles or you know, conflict resolution you know, uh, strategies that, that really w was a bust. I mean, it, it actually made things worse. They, they actually had 
people from the community in specific, what well, we're supposed to be healing circles, threatening people. I mean, it, it just, it was a complete debacle. But, you know, it, it, I live out in, in Seneca Territory and, and one of the schools um, in Western New York that we were asked to participate in the dialogue with was um, a Lancaster uh, school, a suburb of Buffalo. And the superintendent out there, he, he flat out said, when, when pressed over whether the, they should hold a referendum or not, he said, issues of social justice should not be determined in the same manner as, you, as the selection of a prom queen. And so he, he totally pushed off this idea that, that an uninformed, very biased um, you know, community should be empowered to make the decision. And look, we, we saw the debacle that took place in, uh, in the state of Virginia, or the Commonwealth of Virginia, I'm sorry, um, where um, McCullough, Terry McAuliffe you know, said that parents should, uh, should not have a, have a role in deciding what their kids learn in school. Frankly, he's right. He just, he was, he was very, very poor at messaging. There are people who study education. <laughs> I mean, it's the job, it's their career. So the idea of, and I'm not suggesting that I, that I love the way curricula have been developed. You know, there's, there's some significant problems, especially as it relates to telling the truth of history. I, I, you know, I think history is probably the, one, the most poorly managed, and when I say history, I mean social studies, so global studies, social studies, whatever they're calling it now. It is a poorly managed area. But part of it is that it gets siloed, right? You know, it's funny. Uh, I think Huck Finn, the, the N-word is used like 200 times in, uh, in that book. And that book was read out loud. In fact, students were encouraged to say the N-word in school because they were reading it out loud in school. Now we get, we, we get you know, some, some crazy guy standing up with, with Frederick Joseph's book saying that he's gonna steal it from the library. I mean, he says it in a public forum, I'm, I'm taking this, I'm not, I'm not returning it to the library. Well, here's the good news. <laughs> I'm pretty, uh, uh, from what I understand, orders are up. I mean, to the, to the extent that, uh, that uh, Frederick Joseph's book has done well, there's an uptick in purchases. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, I hope everybody listening to this program finds out whether their school library not only has a copy, but has an adequate number of copies. And you know what? Go out and buy it. Go buy this book and donate it to your school. And I'm not just saying it to, to you know, pump up you know, Frederick Joseph's sales. I'm saying we need to make a statement. You know, by all means, buy the book and read the book. I mean, because I'm sure the moron who stood up at this, uh, this board meeting didn't read it. He might have, you know, perused it a little bit to, to find a couple of lines that he, that he absolutely hated, something that suggested that perhaps white people are still harboring some racism. <laughs> that's, that's a really difficult thing. One of the first things that happened in Cambridge was I was accused of calling the town racist, and, and I never did. But I'm going to tell you right now, Cambridge, New York is a racist community. And now... Having said that, I'm not saying that everybody in Cambridge is a racist, but there's enough racism in the town and there's enough tolerance for racism that whatever your metric is for determining whether a community is racist or not, I don't know how Cambridge you know, doesn't fit into that category. 
I mean, I, look, I have a lot of friends. I'm, I went to school there. I mean, and I still have friends that live there, not just the ones I made during this social justice fight over, um, over the mascot, but, but old friends. I had more who absolutely went deafeningly silent over this issue than, than, than uh, stood, stood with me. And, and I did have some stand with me, you know, a handful. I, mean, I might have had, you know, half a dozen people who were still in Cambridge. I, mean, I had other classmates from throughout the country who, um, who stepped up and signed my petitions and that kind of stuff. But in the village of Cambridge, I got, <laughs> I got attacked pretty good. And in fact, some very, very close friends just flat out said, no, they, they were not going to participate in the conversation. They said, no, we have to live here. So they remained silent. And, you know, and, and of course that says something. I mean, I don't, we live in a world where we, we should help each other. And sometimes that helping each other is writing a book that says how to be a better white person. <laughs> I mean, this was a help, you know, a self-help book. It wasn't a book that was, you know, a derogatory that was, look, and it was written for young people. So they could you know, address and have somebody intelligently educate them about the issue and somebody who experienced the racism. Look, I'm sorry, you're probably not gonna have an easy time having your white grandma talk to you about racism. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not a conversation that shouldn't be had, but if you wanna understand what people of color, what oppressed people have, uh, have gone through, you should, you should probably talk to some of the oppressed people. And, and look, it, and it shouldn't be sugar-coated. This is the kind of thing that has to be addressed. And it's the only way we get better. Because look, if you don't draw a connection between racism and the current prison population or the conviction rate, or the suicide rate, or the dropout rate, or the uh, or, or the um, where they are on the income scale, then you can make the improper deduction that white people are superior, and that's how the system reinforces that superiority by constantly pushing down people of color. Look, I've said it before on the program. Native people experience death by cop at a higher rate than, than, than even black people. And I'm not saying this to because I would like being in this competition. The only demographic of black people that, that die at a higher rate, now not total numbers, but at a higher rate, is I think the, the 16 to 21 group. But all other age groups, native people lead that list. Now, and I say, I, I have to remind you, I'm talking about the rate. Because look, if you want to talk about total numbers, more white people die at the hands of cops than, than black people. But the rate at which they die is where the problem is. We've all become painfully aware of the injustices tied to, to death by cop. And we've seen it play out with Breonna Taylor and, and George Floyd and Eric Garner. And I mean, not just people being shot, people being choked and, and stomped on and, and, and brutalized, killed by, you know, in a death ride, Freddie Gray in the back of a, of a van. I mean, look, this is what we're ex experiencing here. Now, these are, be are known because, frankly, these are more urban police departments and, uh, and, you know, and, and people living in a city where news covers this stuff. 
For Native people, we don't get this kind of coverage. You can look it up and find how many Native people have died. I mean, look, we have a missing and murdered Indigenous women issue. And just like you could draw the wrong conclusions about white supremacy based on prison populations and income and you know, uh, ed educational achievement and all, all this other stuff, because you're not understanding what has been keeping people down. Well, it's the same thing with Native people. You could draw the conclusion that uh, you know, Native women die at a higher rate because uh, it's their fault. We can do, do the whole victim blaming thing, but it's not. That's why Regan and I do this show. And it's why guys like Frederick Joseph write. That's why he writes. He writes so people can understand some of these circumstances. Because it isn't self-evident. It should be. But racism is taught. It's a learned, it's a learned characteristic. Nobody pops out of the womb being a racist. They have to learn this stuff. You know, I just watched the, the Colin Kaepernick uh, series on, uh, I think it was on Netflix. And he brought up the doll test again. I've talked about that on the show a number of times. I, I was glad just, I mean, I was glad the, the, the level of research that went into, into his uh, little docuseries um, included it. We are conditioned to believe that white is right. And that anything other than white you got to be somewhat suspect. You got to clutch your purse a little bit tighter when somebody, a person of color, you know, enters the elevator with you. You maybe even want to cross the street. And when a crime commits is committed in in a, in a neighborhood, the first person you look for is somebody who looks like a Mont Arbery. We have to do better, and you know what. We, we, and I, when I say we, I mean people of color, native people, black people, you know, people of color, we're not going to change the system. The people who need to change it are the ones who had the privilege and the standing to change it. So this is why, why white allies and accomplices are so important. So when Frederick Joseph writes a book, and his target audience isn't black people. It's actually white people. Because he's actually, he's actually in the title telling you how to be a better white person. It is a guide that if you do not want to be a bigot, or if you're afraid you maybe you are a bigot, reading the book might, uh, might give you some answers. It's a guide. It's a guide to self-improvement. We need white people to stand up to white people. Look, when I went out to Cambridge, my old hometown, my old stomping grounds, where I was a popular kid, by the way. I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't, you know, ever considered a troublemaker. I mean, I, I was outspoken, I was bold, but you know, I was well liked. But I wasn't taking on the the mascot issue back in 1978. In fact, very few people were. Some were, but very few people were. It was actually just beginning, right? But I was, I, you know, look, I, I was popular when, when I was uh, living there. I'm not so popular there now. Uh, you, you realize that the subtleties of racism, and I saw it when I was there, 
And look, I, I knew the expressions that were being used, and I, you know, I know what got said in in, in various classes and that kind of stuff. And and like, look, my own experience, my own experience, I never looked at as being a victim of racism as much as being a victim of the ignorance that all these white people had towards towards native people. They just didn't know any better. But I also didn't think that it was my job to teach them. And maybe I was wrong. And you know, and, and frankly. Frederick Joseph's trying to be uh, uh, take take that responsibility on. We didn't learn about racism. I mean, the, the, the name Frederick Douglass, we were made aware of that Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King, but there was no conversation about race, and certainly there was no conversation about Native people. So when I see in that same article that talks about this man holding up a copy of Frederick Joseph's book. Some other man says, well, Cambridge is not a racist community. Well, it is. And you know, it, and it was in 1978 too. And, but to be, a, to be a racist doesn't mean you have to victimize people. It's really just about the control you have over other people. In Cambridge, the big issue is keeping out the outsiders. They don't want any outsiders there. If you haven't lived there for four generations, then you're an outsider. Well, let's be honest. The easiest way for a town that's 98% white to make a visual identification about whether somebody's an outsider or not, all you gotta do is look at the skin color. Because you could come there and, and maybe pass off as a relative. Not if you're black or brown. So the first way that you can judge somebody, prejudge, <laughs> prejudice yourself against a person is just look at their appearance. Do they look like an outsider? Well, clothes are just clothes. Skin is skin. Regan, are you there? Great, wonderful. Sorry to be late. I was doing a doing a class, so uh, no, you keep joining all, even if it's just for a moment. It is really important that you do the work that you do. Now, I, Regan, are you familiar with um, Frederick Joseph's work at all? Um, no, I'm not. Okay, now Frederick, um, he, he's got a book that has been a New York State, uh, uh, New York Times bestseller called. Um, the Black Friend on Being a Better White Person. And oh, interesting. And in the school, and I, I just, kind of, just kind of just went through this, in the school that I've been battling this mascot issue, you, one of these guys, and, and the board meetings have been just pure pandemonium every, uh, every month since I went out there a year ago. Uh, some white guy stood, stood up with his book and said um, um, that his daughter had borrowed it from the school library, and if this isn't critical race theory, I don't know what is. And then he said he would be, it was disgusting, it's a load of crap, and that he would not be returning it to the school. So the debate over mascots has now really piqued the, the racism in this small white community to the extent that now attacking writers like, like Frederick Joseph is, uh, is par for the course. Well, you know, that doesn't surprise me. Um, unfortunately, so often, you know, when we see anti-indigeneity, we also see anti-blackness. You know, there, you know, conversations about race, and also calling people out and calling white and calling settlers and white folks in. Like, I think that, you know, as someone who doesn't know very much about what's going on, it also is. It, I have to say that it's not surprising that this is where it has led to. Is well, to and, and again, as well. racism is is a white thing. I mean, you know, we. We aren't responsible for it, you know? <laughs> and, and so when I say we, whether we're talking about blackness or whether we're talking about indigeneity, but, we, I think we have a role in education, but we have to acknowledge that the, the, the commonality here is the ignorance tied to racism, not the victims of it. 
Yeah, and I think, but I think also it's really important that yes, even though racism is uh, an aspect of colonialism and capitalism and something that was brought uh, with uh, settler contact, it has been avidly adopted within community. We see anti-blackness within indigenous communities all the time. Um, and so like though, though racism is an, is an issue of whiteness uh, as part of assimilation tactics, it has been adopted within community. We see it all the time, whether it's through um, disenrollment of indigenous of, of black folks within community, whether it's true, just like abhorrent racism within our communities. Anti-blackness is prevalent and, and I don't wanna ignore the fact um, that it is our duty as indigenous people in solidarity with black liberation to call out those who are participating in anti-blackness, whether they're white or indigenous. Well, and I'm, look, I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna include celebrating Veterans Day as a part of that assimilation. Yeah, definitely, Dev. Oh, definitely a part of the discourse. Yeah, well, I mean, so um, if you get a chance, you should, you should look at, I just ordered, uh, ordered his book. I became aware, it, it, perhaps this will ring a bell. There was a, there was a gentleman a few years ago who w did an opinion piece on USA Today, and he was a, again, Frederick Joseph is a black man. He was wearing a Caucasian's shirt, and um, and there was a whole write-up on it. And he was on his way to do a, um, a speaking engagement as part of a, a panel um, discussion. And he, and the name of the article, and this is from August 2nd of um, 2018, he says, I wore a Caucasian shirt to expose the hypocrisy of racist logos. Um, so that's when I became aware of uh, uh, Frederick's work because I, I was wearing a Caucasian's t-shirt around that same time walking through places like Brooklyn. And his experience was walking through Manhattan um, with this shirt on and the experience that he had uh, from the reactions, uh, which, is, which is in the article. And that's how I, how I first became aware of him. So seeing his name brought up in this context uh, at, at my old high school, was uh, was interesting. So I've reached out to, to to Frederick, and he's got a huge Twitter and Instagram following. So there's a lot of buzz on Twitter and Instagram uh, relating to this uh, because this, what happened is the, the local news or the fairly local newspaper from Glens Falls, New York, wrote um, uh, that one man held up a copy of the Black Friend on being a better white person by Frederick Joseph, that uh, and then said that his daughter had borrowed it from school and he wasn't returning it. And you know, so this is this is now becoming a bit of a buzz. So I brought it up because this happened just Tuesday. Yeah. Oh wow. I you know I am definitely behind on this, and I look forward to catching up to it because uh, it sounds like a really poignant position in terms of uh, you know really exercising uh, solidarity between Black and Indigenous people. Well, and and I think what what um, Frederick's work is 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 not just about our solidarity. It's about saying, look. If you want to become a better white person, you have to understand some of this stuff. So, and he, and he makes it real clear. His book isn't critical race theory. And of course, you and I have talked about that before. Um, but, he, but he's saying, look, if you want to understand this, then, and, and, he, and just like I'm suggesting, we've got to put some of this, back, because we know that there are our allies and accomplices within the white community. But, but they need you know, some education too. And I think that's what, uh, I think that's what Frederick Joseph was, has done with this, with this book. So, and it is a young adults book. It isn't meant for, I mean, this is really meant for teens who are struggling with perhaps be, knowing that they're being influenced by bigotry and who want to make that choice to not be a bigot. And this is a, this is a path for it. That sounds like a, you know, honestly, like sounds like a really exciting read. I look forward to exploring this a bit more because like, especially since it is tailored to a younger audience, that's really, that's really exciting. Cause I think that we're seeing, especially on social media conversations about what white accomplishment and allyship looks like. 
And a lot of it's coming from the youth. And so I find that to be a really interesting invitation. And I, I, I genuinely do look forward to learning more about this. Well, we're, I'm going to see if I can get uh, Frederick to join us on the program. Um, and if we can do oh, that, that'd that, be great. That oh, wow, be great. that would so be excellent. In the meantime, check, you know, check him out. I've, I got my book on order. It should come in tomorrow. I'm going to give it a quick read, and, uh, and hopefully I can get, uh, get him to join us. Uh, it's, it is that, that collaboration that, that we need. So I, I, greatly, I really do look forward to it. Take it to 58, John. All right. Okay. It looks like we can bring it almost to the top of the hour because uh, um, with, with, with the schedule here. So, look, the, the only other thing I, I do want to bring up today is, look, we we are seeing this this pushback and this hysteria over critical race theory. Uh, and you know, I know there's a lot of debate when we talk about things like white supremacy, white privilege, and, and white fragility. And and look, white people have a tremendous amount of control over the, the vast majority of institutions that impact our lives. And so the fear or the fragility is that some of the people who actually have very little to do with that control uh, on many levels um, just don't like the idea that, that white power might slip away. And that's what we're seeing here. Well, you know, it's something that we talk about a lot is is uh, power dynamics and obviously through education because it's such an imperative part of how we learn to be better people is through the education that we uh through the, the education that we receive and also the education that we uh, accept but yeah no I, I think the education piece is important and yeah and look this book was not a part of of a curriculum it was really just a book that was made available in the school library so you know and apparently what many school libraries do they do uh, sometimes in their morning announcements they'll recommend a book that they've they've got and and this was the book that was recommended this girl checked it out her father grabbed it from her and uh and and now says that he's going to try to deprive other students from reading it by not returning it but as it turns out and i mentioned this earlier many people who are now becoming aware of this uh, of this incident are buying up frederick's book and sending it to not only their uh, Cambridge Central School, this school in particular, but they're sending it to, to school libraries all over the country. So I just think that's a great re response. Absolutely, and what, a, what an excellent way to push back on what is such obvious racism. You know, one parent's you know, bigotry should not define an entire generation's education. So, uh, you know, he may not be returning that book to the library, but it's, I think that it is an act of allyship to be replacing it. And I hope that that is continued. And I hope that more radical uh, radical knowledge is disseminated in a way that pushes back against educational systems. You know, get the 500, you know, also the Indigenous People's History for, for Young Adults, an excellent book. Grab one of those while you're sending some out. All right, um, one more time. Know, it's called The Black Friend on Being a Better White Person by Frederick Joseph. Um, by all means, check it out. Uh, it was on New York Times uh, bestsellers list. It may still be. Uh, it may get there again with this new push. Who knows? Let's hope so. <laughs> All right. Well, Regan, thanks for, for uh, <laughs> dialing in for the last few minutes. I greatly appreciate it. And you keep doing the great work that you're doing. Of course, even if it's just for the last part. <laughs> it's always good to hear you, and uh, it's, it's good to check in. One, for one thing, it's good because I get to know that you're safe. So uh, you, you take care of yourself, and uh, we'll catch up with you next week. <laughs> That's fair. All right. This is John Kane with Regan DeLoggins, if only for a few minutes. And this is Resistance Radio. Again, check out Frederick Joseph's book, The Black Friend on Being a Better White Person. And please do, be a better white person. Yahweh.